Hey, I want to uh, just get you this morning very quick and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And as you open up your Bibles in Genesis 1, I want to remind everybody that if you are a recent visitor or guest here at Enon and you've not making Enon Baptist Church your church home yet, or maybe you're just still you're visiting but you're not quite sure yet, you want to know who we are as a church, I, just, I want to invite you again to join us tonight at Starting Point at 5 p.m. It'll be dinner for everyone. And hey, think of it as parents, if you've got little kids, we take care of the kiddos. And uh, so it's kind of like a date night on us, you know, so you may show up and be like, hey man, I don't know anything about the church, but I heard it was a free date, so here we are, you know, but hey, wherever the case may be, we'd love for you to come. Let me tell you why it's important uh, to make those kind of commitments in your life. I believe if you're here today, especially if you're a visitor or a guest, I, I, I believe that you're here today because you're searching for God uh, to come and move in your heart and life. I believe that's the majority of why people are drawn into the house of the Lord. They come to church because they're searching for God. And let me tell you three huge steps that I've always seen that God honors in that process. First is that you fully surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. Uh, God will radically change your life. That's where it begins. If, you were, if you're in this room today and if you were to die tonight and you're not certain where you would spend eternity, uh, in, in, where you would spend eternity, you're not certain that you'd go to heaven. Again, today, settle that in your heart. Give your life to Jesus and he can save you and change your life this morning. Secondly, then you commit to a local church. Uh, you know, we all need the church. Nobody can walk with God uh, in fullness without the body of Christ, which is the church. And so that's the big section. So again, starting point, we can help you figure that out. And then thirdly, I would say connect in a life group. Connect in a small group. Uh, you know, the ministries and programs of the church, including the pastors, we can only go so far in meeting your spiritual needs. To really be able to grow in God you need people. You need real, consistent relationships, other Christians to share life with. And can I say something to you here today? You're not going to get that just from us as pastors. Man, we have our own people that we have to connect with. And honestly, when it comes to tragedy and things in people's life, that's where we can spend the most amount of our time. But the regular, daily, consistent ministry in the church is going to come from your life group. Inside the church, everybody doesn't have to know everybody, but everybody needs to have some somebodies, okay? That's bad grammar, and it's really good theology, okay? Uh, so you do that inside of connecting a life group. Let me say this to you, too. Being a part of a life group is a commitment, but it's worth it. It's not just about you. Without life groups, we can't really be the church. We can have good services, but we can't really be the church. And so being a part of a life group is not just about you. It's about helping us be the best church we can be to minister to other people. And so, again, being a part of a life group is the commitment that we all make to make sure those groups are fun, life-giving, God-honoring, ministry-centered. And what's still great about it is if you work hard creating a life group that's great for every visitor and guest that comes in, that ministers to the people around you, then in the times in your life when you need that ministry, it'll be there. Because none of us have it scheduled on our life calendar that today's the day where I'm going to go through a really big tragedy in my life. The reality is, is that you've got to have that, those people around you. So come tonight and you can learn all about that. But with that being said, uh, let's look at our text today. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. 
God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on day one. Now, as you can see uh, from these first few verses, the Bible begins at the most proper place that you could imagine at the very beginning. In verses 1 through 4, we see the first day of creation where God created the heavens and the earth. He called the light, light, and darkness, darkness, and He separated the two, night from day. But then from there, in verses 6 through 23, we, we see the continuing of God's creating work from day 2 of creation all the way through day 6. Now, I won't read all those verses for the sake of time, but I do want to give you a brief description of each day. So again, day 1, we've read. In verses 6 through 8, we find the second day of creation, where God created the expanse, or as most scholars understand it, the sky. This is the place that separates the earth from the heavens where birds would fly and where the moon and stars would rest. In verses 9 through 13, we find the third day of creation where God created the land, dry land, and on the earth. And also on day three is where he called out for vegetation to sprout, where trees and plants and all sorts of things began to grow and God saw that it was good. And for all of us this morning who you love okra and muscadine, say amen, you know. This is where it started. Purple hole peas. Man, I'm getting hungry. Let's go to White House. So here in verses 14 through 19, we see the fourth day of creation where God created the sun, the moon, and the stars and placed them in the sky to be used as signs for days and seasons, and God called it good. In verses 20 through 23, we see the fifth day of creation. Where God filled the sky with winged birds and waters with living creatures. Pelicans and peacocks, sharks and squid, catfish and crappie were all created on this day. Then in verses 24 and 25 we see the beginning of the sixth day of creation. Where God began to fill the land of the earth with all sorts of animals and, and, and the, after their kind. God made cattle and beasts and all creeping things on the ground and he saw that it was good. However, in verses 26 and 27, we see the remaining portion of day 6 where God created the crown jewel of creation, which was humanity. Look with me in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Now we're going to pause there for this morning. So first off, can we just thank God for his word here this morning? Praise the Lord for such a beautiful record we have of creation. As we begin this series today on how to shape the worldview of the next generation according to the truths of God's Word, Genesis is where we must begin those conversations. Today we're going to look at the first two of 12 essential conversations that parents or grandparents for that matter must have repeatedly with their children. Now all 12 of these conversations will find their roots in these first three chapters in the book of Genesis. Now, without doubt, there are going to be way more than 12 conversations and way more than 12 topics that you will need to address with your children in order to shape their minds and their hearts towards honoring God. However, I believe that going back to Genesis and addressing the truths we find there in the beginning will ultimately help parents lay a foundation that is needed for all subsequent conversations to make sense according to a Christian worldview. Church family, if we don't understand and believe first in the beginning God, then nothing else after that is going to make sense. 
One pastor once spoke about the importance of the Genesis account in creating a biblical worldview, saying the beginning of a biblical worldview is to understand the beginning of the Bible. Parents, we can all feel lost right now when it comes to raising our children with Christian worldview, especially as the world is desperately fighting to turn their minds away from the things of God. Can can I get an amen to that here today? Sometimes we struggle with where to turn, how to invest in our children, how to fight this onslaught for what is truth, and sometimes we feel lost. What I would encourage you today, what we're going to do over these next several weeks is we're going to go back to the beginning. Because anytime you've lost something, your keys, anytime you've lost your phone, the best place to find it is to go back to the last place that you had it. And for us to be able to truly see and understand what God's intention is for humanity, it's best for us to go back to the beginning and see how God first laid it out. And so that's what we're going to do. So the title of our message today and next week as we look at these first four conversations is going to be Conversations About God and Man. The two topics that we're going to discuss today, these two essential conversations that parents need to have with children are, there is a God, and God created all things. So with that being said, let's dive in uh, to our text today. So conversation number one that parents should have with their children is that there is a one true God. Now this is where we'll spend much of our time today. Now, while it may seem obvious, we can't overlook the importance of regularly and specifically having the conversation with our children to explain the existence of the one true God, the God of the Bible. To be able to properly explain to our children that God is the one true God, as with all of these 12 essential conversations during this series, we're going to ask three specific questions. First, where do we find this truth in Scripture? Secondly, how do we see this truth in our world? And finally, why is it important for us to know this truth? And so let me start today by answering these questions about the existence of the one true God. Question number one, where do we find the existence of God in Scripture? Now, in many ways, this question about finding the existence of God in Scripture is probably our easiest to answer because the Bible in its entirety is a written record of the working of God In the world, we find the existence of God at the very beginning of Scripture, prior even to creation, which is our text today. In the beginning, God is where Scripture starts off. Genesis 1 1 reminds us that there is a God, and it also reminds us that God is eternal. See, it says, in the beginning, God, then He created the heavens and the earth. So before creation existed, God already was. God has always been. There's never been a time where God was not. A beautiful way to think about the existence and the eternality of God from Genesis 1 is this. Before God began the beginning, God already was. Isn't that great? Before God began the beginning, God already was. It's also important for us to know that this same truth is true with the other parts of the Trinity, the other parts of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, we see John speaking about Jesus as the Word, the capital word there, about how He is also God from the beginning. It says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this is why this is important to know. Even though other faiths will express a belief in God as Christians, the Scriptures show that not only the existence of God but an unbroken line of faith in the one true God from Adam Adam and Eve 
to Noah, to Abraham, to Jesus. It's interesting when you begin to look at the record of Scripture is that the Scriptures itself points to the fact that there is one true God. At one point in time, God created Adam. And at another point in time, God wiped off the face of the earth with a global flood and he started again with Noah and his family. And both Adam and Noah were worshipers of the one true God. Celebrity Oprah Winfield. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, is it not Winfield? Winfield's in northwest Alabama. Oprah Winfrey, she popularized the idea that God is on the top of a mountain and that other faiths are on different sides of the mountain working their way towards God. Christians are on one side, Muslims on the other side, Hindus on the other side, and they're all working their way towards the one true God. The problem with this is, is the Bible directly contradicts this statement. From the very beginning of Jewish history in Deuteronomy 6.4, Jews were, in, were called to recite worshipfully the Holy Shema. And it starts off in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To see the existence of God in Scripture, all you have to do is read the first page of the first book in the first verse, and there you find God. And the rest of the entirety of God's Word affirms the same truth, that God is real. And one final truth that we need to know about the existence of God, as far as Scripture is concerned, is that the lives of the people that are recorded in the Bible overwhelmingly affirm the existence of God, but they do that even in the worst of situations. Job, who had lost everything, said he still knew his Redeemer lived. The three young men in the fire stated that God had the power power to deliver them, but vowed to serve him even if he didn't. When Stephen was stoned for preaching the gospel. Those who were scattered about for their lives, they went about preaching that Jesus was alive. And why did they do this? Because God is real and God is alive. And the scriptures testify to this. Second question we need to answer is, how do we see the existence of God realized in our own world? Now, in order for us to have a real conversation with our children including the growing intellectual minds of our preteens, teens, and young adults, we have to not only point to the existence of God in Scripture, but also point them to God's working in our world. While faith will ultimately be the foundation of every relationship with God, that does not mean that we as Christians have to check our brains at the door. So let me give you four ways that we can believe in the existence of God. The scripture calls us to look at the world. The Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. So there's no reason we have to divorce intellect from serving God. Now again, you may not use all of these examples with your children, but store them away in the moments when you do need to. The first way we see the existence of God is in creation. You know, the Bible itself affirms that creation is a major means by which God makes himself known to the world. The world around us is one of the greatest testimonies that there is a God. Psalms chapter 19 verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20, Paul speaks about how creation has revealed God to the world, saying, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. From the very beginning, Scripture points to the fact that what the world around us is what points to the existence of God. 
Every time that we've seen a beautiful sunrise or every time that we've watched a storm or maybe watched your child come into the world or the the beauty of pregnancy and these things, we recognize that we're standing on holy ground, that God is being proclaimed. Parents, one of the greatest ways that you can lead your children to faith and existence of God is not just to enjoy these moments, but to make these moments teaching moments where you can point them to God. My wife does a really good job about this. If we're driving down the road with our kids and we see a beautiful uh, maybe rainbow or sunset or something, she'll say, kids, look at that. Look how God has created that. Isn't that awesome? And and I find my own ways to do that. It's usually a little different. Like when I take my children deer hunting and we kill a deer and we're standing next to it, we pray and we thank God for this beautiful creation that he's made that we've killed. And we thank him for it. You know, so... Again, there's many ways that you can do that, but take time to point your children to creation. The idea that you can see God in creation in theological terms, here's a $3 term for you, is the teleological argument. It's a miracle that I said that right, by the way. It's basically, essentially, the argument for intelligent design. Intelligent design says that the existence of God can be seen by the way things are laid out in nature and creation with such beauty and complexity that it screams that it's not random, but it's intentional. In May 2009, the Discovery Institute published an article discussing the science behind intelligent design. In the article, it was discussed that when scientists reverse engineer parts of certain cells, they discover its vast complexity. In the article, they said, the more we discover about the cell, the more we're learning about that it functions like a miniature factory, replete with motors, powerhouses, garbage disposals, guarded gates, transportation corridors, and most importantly, central processing units. Since cellular language requires an author... And microbiological machines require an engineer. And genetically encoded programs require a programmer. Increasing numbers of scientists feel the best explanation for this is that they were intentionally designed by an intelligent designer. Church family, it points, creation points us to God. The second way we see the existence of God is in the core of man. It's not just in creation, it's in our souls, who we are. The Bible and sociological studies have found that humanity within them has the propensity to search for God, to contemplate God, and even to find greater levels of satisfaction through faith in God. Parents, it is important for us to know that the belief in God is not the minority in the history of the world, and it's still not the minority today, but belief in God is still the majority. Psalms chapter 14, verse 1, the psalmist spoke about the oddity of those who don't believe in God, the minority aspect of that, saying, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I wouldn't necessarily use that in evangelistic conversation, by the way. You're having a conversation with somebody, I'm not sure I believe in God. Well, the Bible says you're a fool. You know, don't go there. But it is good to know that this is the scripture affirms that is the majority of people still believe in God. And sociological studies show that. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed an idea of him in our souls. It says he has set eternity in our hearts. You ever notice that? That even when people who are not religious in their life, they're not spiritual in their life, but when somebody dies, that suddenly they start using spiritual language. 
They start talking about seeing them again one day. Start talking about them continuing to live. And why is that? Because there's something in the core of man that says death is not the end. There's got to be more to life than this. And this is God in our hearts saying there is more. And by the way, this is really important to say. I've done two funerals in recent days of great godly men. But I've also done funerals of those who did not live as though they knew God in life, but yet they wanted to be proclaimed that they did in death. And can I say it's the most odd thing in the world? To stand over somebody and proclaim something that they had no example, no, no fruit of whatsoever in life, but they want to claim God in death. Let me tell you how you avoid that. Live for Jesus today. Don't expect somebody to lie at your funeral. The word evidence, again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, we see Paul speaking about the fact that God made himself evident within our hearts. Since because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. The word evident in the Greek means known or manifest. Essentially, Romans 1 tells us that the existence of God is something that is written on our hearts. We may ignore it. We may be taught that it's wrong. We may naturally, but, but we, we may turn away from it. But we naturally contemplate and even find our greatest joy in knowing God. I remember hearing a Pastor Robert Lewis, he's an author and pastor in Arkansas, and he quoted an ABC News special that was done by non-religious people, and it was about happiness. The title of the special was The Mystery of Happiness, How to Get It and Who Has It. And one of the things that came out, one of the most essential things that came out from the happiest people in the world were people who have a vibrant faith. Some of the happiest people in the world are people who have a vibrant faith. Faith from a non-religious organization. Other sociological studies show that same thing. And why is that? Because we are happiest when we know God because there is a God who created us. The third way that we see the existence of God is through the consideration of our minds. When I mention that we can discover the existence of God through the consideration of our minds, I mean that when we genuinely apply intellectual consideration for the existence of God... There are several valid arguments for the existence of God that even scientists have trouble explaining. Let me give you two, two examples of genuine intellectual arguments for the existence of God that can be useful as we raise up the next generation. The first argument is this, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Theologian Wayne Grudem says, The cosmological argument considers the fact that every known thing in the universe has a cause. Therefore, it stands to reason that the universe itself has a cause. Now, when Grudem uses the word cause here, we need to understand it as a beginning action. Essentially, this argument means that all things begin somewhere. That's proven in scientists that nothing happens by itself. That for any effect to happen, cause must happen. For anything to come forth, there has to, something has to be acted upon. And the reality is, is that if you begin to reverse engineer every person, everything in creation, every living cell, back to where it began, at some point, you had to have a beginning of the beginning. Life didn't just begin. Something had to begin. Something had to begin the beginning. Someone had to push the first domino to begin life. And for those of us who are Christians, we believe that this is the proof of God. We believe this is Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Now we need to understand, yes, this is a faith position. But I want you to know that it's not alone in understanding the origins of the world. It takes no more faith to believe in God than it does several other views that are propagated in the world about the beginning of the world. 
For example, renowned atheist and professor Richard Dawkins was asked about this argument about the origins of life on earth. And he admitted that it must have had a beginning. But this is what he suggested. He suggested that aliens must have visited the earth and put life into motion and suggested this over the possibility of God. Church family, we need to know that it is just as intelligible to believe in the existence of God than any other views propagated by science and culture. They all involve faith. And parents, we need to point our children to the fact that the biblical account for the origins of the world is just as likely, and I would argue more likely, because we have a written account of it in Scripture than anything else that is being taught in universities, in their science classrooms, anywhere else. It is not unintelligible. It is faith in the one true God. And it stands greater than than any of the other faiths that stand out there, any of the other arguments that are out there. To say that you believe in God takes no more faith than say that you believe in aliens. The second example is the moral argument for the existence of God. The moral argument for the existence of God is the argument that centers around the fact that most of the world shares the same truths about right and wrong, about what is just and unjust. And these truths seem to coincide even across history, language, and cultural bounds. Now these similarities seem to suggest that there must be some level of absolute truth at work within the world and that the only explanation of absolute truth is that there must be a God. Now liberals and secularists today will argue that in culture that it is society that defines morality. Recently, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, spoke about this issue saying the problem with believing that morality is set by culture is that some things are wrong to everyone even before society says it is. Before anybody comes out and says that's wrong, we already know it's wrong in our hearts. Let me give you an example of this. While we live in Alabama that was once a season that cel- once a state that celebrated segregation, that celebrated racism, that celebrated slavery. Praise God over the years is that that has been diminished, is that that has been uh, released and that we're believing now that racism, while it still exists, is something that we should continue to fight and reject. But if you go ask a child, you go sit down and try to explain the concept of racism to a child and they immediately say, no, that's wrong. Now they can be taught otherwise, but in their core they know what is right and wrong. Where does that right and wrong come from? Where do we say that it is right and wrong in other aspects of life? We all similarly agree that it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to injure children. Right now, even in our society, the whole world came out about the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine. And it seems wrong that a larger, stronger country would go and invade a smaller, weaker country. But the whole world came out almost and said, this is wrong. Which, by the way, that in and of itself speaks against Darwinian theorists that says the weaker will give way to the stronger, if we really believe that, then our soul would not have so much of a problem with it. Where does right and wrong come from? It comes from ultimately an inner conscience. You say, well, you live your truth and I'll live my truth. Even that argument breaks down at some point. Because you can be living your truth, but see something that's going on in the world that has nothing to do with you, and you cry out that that is wrong. Where does that come from? Well, the Bible says that that comes from God. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says, For when the Gentiles, these would be considered people who did not know God, who do not have the law, the rules of God, 
do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. He's saying that people instinctively do things that are right and wrong. Where does that come from? Look at verse 15. In that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. The scripture basically says God has written right and wrong on our hearts. Now people can ignore that, people can sear that, but the majority of people on the earth, we, across all cultural boundaries, we all have certain things that are right and wrong, and it's one of the greatest explanations for the existence of God. But the fourth and final way we see the existence of God is through the conviction of those who put their faith in Him. Now we can see the evidence of God in our world through creation, through the core desire of man, through the consideration of many intellectual reasons for God. But church family, the greatest way to see God on display in the world is through the lives of those who know Him and serve Him. Those who really know God live differently. They speak differently. They suffer differently. They struggle differently. They love differently than the rest of the world, and the world can see it. Matthew chapter 6, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus spoke about this, saying, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Parents and grandparents here today, one of the greatest ways that you will show your children that there is a one true God, the God of the Bible, and that God is alive, is that you show them that he is alive in you. This is the greatest and most convincing argument that you will ever have with your children, ultimately to point them to the existence of God. Parents, may the song of our life that is lived in the face of our children back up everything that we say to them. Let our song be the song of the old hymn that says, He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Let's give glory to God this morning. Praise God. The third and final question concerning the existence of God is why is it so important to teach that there is a one true God to our children? The greatest answer to that question is because if we as Christian parents and grandparents and friends, if we don't tell the next generation that there is a one true God, nobody else will. There may have been a time in American culture where the truths about God and the Bible would have some way been picked up by our children here and there around us, but that day is far gone. Today, through the efforts of atheism, our children will be taught that there is no God. Today, through the efforts of secularism, our children will be taught that God is not necessary. Today, through the efforts of humanism, our children will be taught that they are their own gods. Today, through the efforts of liberalism, our children will be taught that God can be whatever you want Him to be as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. Today, through the efforts of pluralism, our children will be taught that there are many gods that all lead to the same place. Parents and grandparents, there is a one true God. And the Bible says that one day He will make Himself known to the world in fullness. But on that day, it will be too late to become His child. Because then when He comes, He's coming as judge. Parents, if we want our children to know the one true God today and to know Him as Father, you shouldn't expect that it will happen unless you are the ones to teach them. A biblical view of God will only be a priority standard for your child if you make it one. And it is our responsibility as parents to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now this is sobering. 
It should be as parents. But listen to me this morning. It shouldn't make us fearful. Because it shouldn't make us fearful. It shouldn't make us think that it's impossible. Because there is nobody on earth or in heaven who wants your children to know God more than God himself. And God loves a parent or a grandparent or a friend who will lay before him and say, Oh God, help me to point the next generation to you. I've said it before. Whoever wants the next generation the most, according to Pastor Michael Catt, will have them. And we've got to be the ones who want them the most. So the existence of God is where we've spent the bulk of our time today. But let me very briefly give you the second essential conversation parents need to have with your children that piggybacks off of the first. Conversation number one we need to regularly have with our children is that there is a one true God. And the second conversation that we need to have is that God created all things. As we see in our text today in Genesis 1-1 tells us not only that there is a God, but that God is the creator God. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So to be able to effectively have this conversation with our children, we've got to answer those same questions again. Question number one, where in Scripture do we see that God created all things? This is pretty clearly seen. Genesis chapter 1, days 1 through 6 of creation, shows us that God is a creator God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For by him and through by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him, have been created through him and for him. I love how in Revelation chapter 4, when the 24 elders are gathered around the throne of God and they are worshiping God, one of the attributes of God that they praise him for is the fact that God created all things. We should worship God because he created all things. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord, And our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Revelations 4.11. So yet again, God is the creator of all things is unquestioned in Scripture. Second question, how do we see the truth that God created all things realized in our world? I'll give you a few ways very briefly. It piggybacks off what we just mentioned. We see the truth that God created all things first in our world through the existence of creation. It may sound elementary, but the fact that everything we see in the biblical creation account exists today is evidence that creation happened. We can see God as creator today because we're standing in the world he created. And if we go back again to that cause, the cause argument is that everything had to begin somewhere. And we believe that God began the beginning. The second way we see the truth that God created all things in our world is through the sophistication of creation. Again, this is intelligent design. It's seeing how God has molded and put things together in such a way that it proclaims that He is real. I've had those moments where it just showed God shines through. I remember when Kimberly and I had Ella, our firstborn, and she was nursing her, and there was sickness came in our house, and Ella was a preemie, and so she was born at barely four pounds. And, uh, and so we brought her home, and she was like four pounds and 12 ounces or something. I mean, she was tiny. Uh, and we got sickness in our house, and we were super concerned with that. And so we, we asked our doctor, you know, should we be concerned? What do we need to do? And it was so beautiful to hear the doctor say, you don't need to be worried because the fact that you are nursing your child is an incredible thing. Because the way that your body was created as a woman who's just had a child is that the antibodies that you are creating in your body that heals yourself are also intentionally transferred to your breast milk so that when you nurse your child, you are literally giving them the medicine that they need to inoculate them before they even get sick. I remember looking at that and thinking, wow, look at God. 
Look at God, how he has worked these things out. And you can give example after example after example of sophistication and creation that screams that God is the creator. And then thirdly, we see the truth that God created all things in our world through the evidence for the biblical account of creation. Parents, we need to know that kids, we need to tell our kids that the biblical account of creation is a valid argument, though it may be laughable on universities and campuses, in genuine, honest, scientific realms, it holds just as much weight as any other argument. Let me give you a few examples of this. The Bible says that man was created by God instantaneously and not through evolutionary processes. Now, for decades now, evolution has been touted The theory of Charles Darwin as the fact is that ultimately human beings evolved through the natural order of things that ultimately we were apes became humans. And this is just what's been celebrated. But even Darwin himself said for this to have been the case that certain links would need to have been found in the fossil records to be able to show that this was the case. If we were to have evolved over centuries and thousands and thousands of years into human beings, that there would be links found of these half-man, half-ape people. And while we have records of dinosaurs and we have records of so many things in the ancient world, we just don't see these links like they were touted to be. Now, there's been a few that have been said, this was the link, this is the link. And when most honest opinions look at that, it are human beings who maybe had birth defects, but they're not half-ape, half-men people. And then just the vast majority and the fact that we don't have thousands and thousands of these in the fossil records show that God, that, that, that God had, had intentionally created human beings as human beings and they were created instantaneously but did not evolve. Also, the Bible seems to suggest that the world is much younger than common science affirms today. This is the young earth versus old earth dilemma. Now I'll say this, I do know some great Christian people who affirm, who believe in the scriptures, who affirm an old earth, so this may not necessarily pertain to you. But let me give you one example of just again how we can see the possibility of creation as valid in our science realm. Because in science, popular science today, even science doesn't agree. Scientists who study the sun, our physical sun, They age the sun in such a way that the age of the sun does not correlate with other scientists who age the earth. So where scientists who age the earth at billions of years old, that life was sustained on the earth millions of years ago, those who are physically and and are, are gauging and are studying the sun right now would say that the sun would not have been hot enough millions of years ago to have sustained life on the earth. And so two sides of incredibly intellectual scientists that you can see that they disagree on the age of the earth, which is true in so much science they may disagree. But if you look at the age of the sun itself, the sun that we know today would give off enough heat in the universe that if you believe in a young earth, a biblical account of creation, that the earth would have been able to sustain life. When God said, let there be light, and he created the sun, and then immediately he created man a few days later, is that suddenly the earth and the age of the earth make sense. Church, there are just as many scientific explanations of our natural world that match the biblical record, if not more, than those that don't. And then finally, question number three. Why is it important for us to teach our children that God is the one who created all things? Let me give you a few ways as we prepare to close. It's important to teach our kids that God created all things for many reasons. First... 
If our kids don't see God as the creator of all things, then they will never properly appreciate creation. Creation was never intended to be something that ended upon our our enjoyment alone. God never intended us to look at a sunrise and look at these beautiful things around us and say, wow, isn't that cool? It was intended for it to be something that causes us to worship. And when we see God as the creator of all things, it points us to worship. Secondly, if our children don't see God as the creator of all things, then they'll never properly steward creation well. Christians, we have the greatest responsibility to steward creation as anybody because God initially gave Adam and Eve and set him as ruler and charge over creation. But finally, most importantly, if our kids don't see God as the creator of all things in nature, as beautiful as it is, then they will never see themselves as special in creation like God wants them to. And when the Bible says there, the latter part on day six, when he created man, he created man in his image. While all of creation is beautiful and wonderful, it doesn't hold a candle to what God did in creating man. And why is this important? Why is it important to know that God created all things, but he created human beings, he created us special? Because in our world today, in certain circles, it is easily justifiable to kill a child in the womb, but it would be an outrage under the penalty of arrest, of arrest to kill some endangered species of an animal. I saw that even just this last week. Everything, all the reports that are coming out of Ukraine Families being decimated, children being killed. Is that one article wrote of the peril, with a perilous tone of the 20 endangered species that are in the nation of Ukraine, calling to action to go save the animal, animals, ignoring the reality of the suffering of human beings. Church family, if we don't get these things right, if we don't get the beginning right, if we don't get a worldview right with our children, then the world will collapse upon itself. It leads to anarchy and brokenness because God is the creator of all things and you take God out of it and we mess it all up. So again, families, what are one of the greatest things we can do these first two conversations? Let your children know that there is a God, the one true God, and that God created all things. Can we give the Lord a hand for his word? Praise the Lord for meeting with us today. I am super excited about this series. I'm going to ask our instrumentalists to begin to make their way back up. And again, we're hoping that we're going to be able to develop some resources that we'll be able to say in the months ahead here at Enon that as you bring your children uh, to raise them up, we're all doing this together as part of a church family, that January is the month that we have this conversation with our kids that there is a one true God. And we give all of our parents and grandparents some resources on how to have these conversations. And we do this every year from the time a kid's in first grade to the time he graduates in high school. We are developing and shaping the worldview of our children in a way that honors God. So that's what we're looking forward to. But I wanted to end this morning with this thought. When we think about God, the one true God, we think about Him in the days of creation, we think about Him who created all things, He seems pretty big, and He should. It should be humbling. But the gospel truth doesn't just tell us that there is a one true God who created all things, who stands at the the foundations of the earth and holds things in motion, but it also says this God wants to know you and that you function the best. You were created to know Him and walk with Him. The problem is, is that all of us have sinned against that God. You know, that moral argument, that right and wrong that we talked about, we sense that. We sense that there's been times where we've broken God's commands and God's laws. But the Bible says that God is holy and 
He can't abide in sin. And so we rightfully were to be punished by God. But God loved us. And he sent his son Jesus to come to this earth to down the cross for our sins so that we would not be forsaken by God so that God could bring us into a relationship with him. Jesus took the separation from God, took our sin on our behalf that we might know him. And some of you in this room today, you feel lost. If you don't know Jesus, you'll always feel that way. But today, you can know him. Today, you can call out to him in a real way. And Jesus can save you. I said that at the beginning of the message today. It's one of the greatest actions in life that will cause God to be at the center of your life. It starts with you making Jesus the Lord of your life. And you can do that right now. I believe God may be drawing some of you to do that right now. So I'm going to ask you right there where you are. Maybe bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you say, Brother Zach, I believe there's a God. But I don't know him. And I want to know him. The Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you'd pray and ask God right there where you are right now. Jesus, I want to know. Tell him, God, I confess my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. God, I believe you love me. So I ask you to save me. I give my life to you. Save me, oh God. If that's you this morning with every head bowed, every eye closed, this is between you and I. I'm not going to embarrass you, but you know who you are. This is just between you and I. If you ask Jesus to save you this morning, would you just glance up at me and fix your gaze on me here just for a moment? I just want to be able to pray for you. Is that you here today? You say, Pastor Zach, I, I gave my life to Jesus this morning. I asked him to save me. Would you just look up at me right there where you are? Again, this is between you and I. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. Is that you today? Just keep your eyes on me here just for a moment. Is that you this morning? So I'm going to ask you, if you ask Jesus to save you this morning, in these next few moments, we're going to sing, and I'm going to encourage you to take that card. Amen. I'm going to ask you to take that card of the seat back in front of you and just mark on there. I, there's a little place you can mark, I gave my life to Christ. If you'd like somebody to pray for you, our pastors will be up front. Again, we'll pray for you uh, this morning. If you'd like to join uh, this church, we'd love for you to become a member of the church. Come forward, and we'd love to pray for you. And Again, take these next few moments. Maybe you say, Pastor Zach, I know God, but I need God to do a fresh work in my life. Take these next few moments to call out to Him. Lord, we love you this morning. We praise you. Give us courage and strength to respond to you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship the Lord together. Our pastors are up front. Feel free to come.